Good morning. Setting up my prop here. How's everybody doing? Welcome to Who Are You? Finding the True You. Everybody here in the room, those watching or listening online, thanks for being here. Today we're talking about shockingly good. That's why I got my jumper cables here. Shockingly good. You know, um, if you have a dead battery, particularly if you have to be someplace, right? If it's raining or you're running late and your battery's dead, somebody comes along and shocks it back to life, that's a good day, isn't it? You ever had that feeling before and somebody shocks it? That's good. That's a good shock. But there's bad shocks in life too. Like if you're walking along and you stumble and start to fall and you reach out to stabilize yourself and you grab a hold of an electric fence, that's a bad shock. That's not a, that's not a good thing, right? I was watching this YouTube video about a doctor at the Cleveland Clinic. They do heart surgeries. And actually when they're doing heart surgery, they stop your heart. And then after the surgery, as it's wrapping up, they shock it. And they'll pull out paddles. And he says, just like you see on the, on the movies. He said, they'll say, paddles, clear, and there's boom. And they'll put both those paddles in and they'll shock it. If your heart starts again beating because it's been shocked, that's a good thing, right? That's a, well, I think we can all agree that's a good thing. It takes two cables, it takes two paddles, it takes two of these things to shock back. Now, this last one I want to tell you about that's shocking. I don't know if it's good or bad. You can make your own you, you, you know, determination on this. Uh, my uh, wife, her family, a lot of extended family in Percival, Virginia. Percival, Virginia is the other side of Leesburg. And so they like to do these big family gatherings out there, get a bunch of people together. And so they have a pretty big house. So we went out there. It's a number of years ago for a big family gathering. And, and there we are. And my wife uh, and her family, they're all big party animals. So they step early late. I like to go to bed early, read the Bible, pray a little bit. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, that's, uh, I, went, I went to bed, and I left the lights on because I knew they had to come in, and we were staying in a room with my in-laws. So my father-in-law and my mother-in-law were all in the room together. They had two different beds. It was like a hotel room. They had so many bedrooms, and they had like two queen beds. And so I took the one farthest to the wall. I left the lights on, and then I rolled over and faced the wall, you know, so I was away from the lights, and I, I went to sleep. And I guess a few hours later, I heard some rumbling. Obviously, somebody came into the room, and then I felt somebody get into the bed next to me, which I knew was my wife, right? And so I thought, you know, I'll roll over, give a little smooch good night, right? And so I roll over, you know, and when you roll over, you're right face-to-face with that person if they're facing you, and they were, and right there in my face was my mother-in-law. <laughs> now, that was shocking. Do you know what I'm saying? That was, whoa, that was really shocking. Not saying it's good, not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it really shocked me big time. Uh, this John chapter 4, which we're getting ready to read in just a second, is the long, to think about this, check this out, everybody. It's the longest recorded conversation that Jesus ever has. That alone, it's the longest recorded conversation Jesus ever has. So obviously, it's really important. So long as we have. And at the end of this reading today, you'll find that his followers, his disciples, his closest friends were shocked. They were shocked. And the question is, why are they shocked? And it just makes you think about this because Jesus often in the biographies of his life, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he shocks those around him. Those who know him really well, those who are kind of standing off to the side watching, they're, they're shocked. And it just makes you think this. If the Jesus you're following isn't shocking you? If the Jesus that you want to know about or that you think you know about isn't shocking you on a regular basis, you're following the wrong Jesus. You got the wrong Jesus. Because the Jesus we read about here and the biographies about his life, 
is always very shocking. Let's go and let's read it. Here we go. John 4, 4. He, meaning Jesus, had to, notice that, had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well. It's about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Let's take a little break right there. First of all, it says he had to go through. Why did he have to go through? I mean, Jews and Samaritans, they don't associate with each other. They don't eat together. They don't drink together. They don't walk together. They don't talk together. They don't associate. They have nothing to do with each other. Matter of fact, like going through Samaria was not something they even wanted to do, even though those, those two lands just butted up right against each other. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to stay, but it says he had to go through Samaria. Now, We've been saying this about the Gospel of John for the past couple of weeks that we've been studying this phenomenal book, the most influential book in the history of humanity. Right? This book has been more widely distributed, sold more copies than any other book that we've ever, ever had. And it's all about the identity of Jesus. It's all about. So it uses the word glory a lot as you read through. That's a common theme, glory. Glory means identity. It's who Jesus Christ really is. And here's the, here's the premise to that whole thing. Once you figure out who Jesus is, because we're created in his image, you're not created in anybody else's image. This is in the Bible theme, right? Not creating anybody else. You're creating the image of Jesus. Once you figure out his story, you'll figure out your story. Once you figure out his story, you'll figure out your story. Anybody seen that hit movie recently, Ford versus Ferrari? Anybody seen that? Any couple hands? Okay, thank you very much for the woohoo and the raising of the hands. That's excellent. I noticed that Matt Damon, who plays the part of Carol Shelby, car designer, at the very beginning of the movie, he says, the most important question is this, who are you? I also noticed that the very end of the movie, Matt Damon again, playing the part of Carol Shelby, says, the most important question is, same thing, who are you? And I thought, man, that's awesome. That's the name of our current series at church. I wonder if they got it from us. But who are you? It's a super important question. Psychologists will tell you this. I've been saying this. If you know who you are, you have greater peace, greater purpose. You'll make better decisions, fewer regrets. Psychologists also say this. Ready for this? Once you know who you are. Until you know who you are, you'll never be able to understand why you do what you do. Does that ever happen to you ever like, why did I do that? Why'd I say that? Why'd I do that? Psychologists tell us that once you understand who you are, then you can begin to unpack that. So Jesus Christ, we have this amazing book called John that is focused solely on who are you? Who is he? Once I figure out his story and I get clarity around his story, who Jesus really is, these are a group of people being written to, some of them like... They really know Jesus. And John's saying, no, 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 we need to get clear about who Jesus is. And some people are just like checking Jesus out. They're exploring. Just, okay, well, let's make sure that as you check it out, you're getting the real deal. You're not getting a counterfeit Jesus. So this is why the gospel of John is written. It's clarifying all of that. He had to go through Samaria. The cool thing is, is a group of us 
And there's a little note in the bulletin about this. Israel trip 2020. We have to go through Samaria too. This November, we will go through Samaria. If you're interested in that, there's something in the bulletin. Let's keep reading. Verse number 10. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Living water, that living water is the most basic essential thing that every single person needs in life. Verse 10, uh, verse 11. But sir, you don't have a rope. You don't have a bucket, she said. The well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here and get water. Now, here's where things get dicey. Verse 16, go get your husband, Jesus told her. She said, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, the community group I'm in, uh, probably because I'm in it, we actually do uh, the scriptures ahead. So every community group that we have, well, most of the community groups that we have here at Grace, the Bible study groups, we're studying this. So we'll study this week, right? We'll study this week. But mine studied this because I'm in it like weeks and weeks and weeks ago. And you know what they said about this? Wait a minute, what happened to Jesus? I've never seen Jesus like this before. He's so confrontational. He's so in your face. Is he having a bad day? What's going on here? I have never seen Jesus like this before. Well, what is happening to Jesus? He says, go call your husband. Obviously, she's been married five times, right? Obviously, she's looking for something and she hasn't found it, right? Now, you could say, she got married the first time, could have been both of them. She got married a second time, could have been both. Got married a third time, could have been both of them. But my goodness, you've been married five times. Now, what does that make you think about? If you're old enough, and I'm not old enough, but, you know, I have parents who tell me about stuff like this. You remember somebody by the name of Elizabeth Taylor. Does anybody remember the name Elizabeth Taylor? Elizabeth Taylor was married eight times, right? She married Richard Burton twice, eight times, seven men. She was looking for something like the Samaritan woman and was dehydrated because she wasn't finding it. Her first marriage was to Conrad Hilton. She was married less than a year. And the reason I actually even know anything about Elizabeth Taylor is because one day, lo and behold, she married the senator of the great state of Virginia, John Warner. She helped him campaign. She was around a little while. They were married a couple years. And then she said, Washington, D.C. is a loser town. I don't like D.C. It's boring. And she said, I've got to go back to Hollywood. And she went back, and then the marriage wasn't long after that. But anyway, okay, there you go. Looking for something. There's this old song, right? Looking for love in all the wrong places. Huh? I hear a few chuckles. Some people remember. Looking for love. It's a Johnny Lee song. Looking for love in too many faces. Searching their eyes. Looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Now, Jesus says, I have, I have living water, and that's what truly you're dreaming of. You're dreaming of living water. You're looking for something, and you're not finding it. We're looking for love. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for satisfaction. We're looking for contentment. We're looking for something. How do we get it? Jesus says, I have it. But how do you get it? Jesus says, I have it. 
How do you get it? The Samaritan woman and the Samaritan people are dehydrated. Water is the most basic essential of life. We're looking for meaning, purpose, contentment, and incorporates all of that. This is what is being looking for, right? And the problem is, well, we can use these to illustrate Jesus can offer us living water all day long, contentment, satisfaction, fullness. He can offer that all day long. But just like it takes two of these little clampy things, right? If I just put one of them on the battery, that battery's not coming back to life, everybody. If I stop your heart and I just say, well, let's just use one paddle today. Your heart's not going to beat again. You have to go in with both. So Jesus can offer living water all day long, but we have to do something on our side. We have to jump in to that, all in with him from both sides. Jesus, I'm ready to offer you living water. Are you ready to receive it? So there's something going on there where she's obviously having an issue with commitment, obviously not willing to jump in, and he's clarifying to her, this is who I am, and this is who you are, and this is how much I love you, and I just wish that you would fully jump in and fully commit to a relationship. Wait, let's, let's, let's keep reading. This is why he had to go to Samaria. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. So it's very interesting that this doesn't seem to bother her about the five husbands, this thing that we find so confrontational, but it seemed to bother her. I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back and they were, here's the word, here's our word for the day. They were shocked. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking with her? Why are these guys so shocked? Why is his closest followers so shocked? Are they shocked because she's the wrong race, wrong religion, wrong gender? Shouldn't be talking to a woman. He's a rabbi. They didn't do that. Wrong race, wrong religion, wrong gender. Is that why they're shocked? Are they shocked because she has the wrong beliefs and wrong behavior? Are they shocked because she's an immoral woman living amongst and immoral people. Is that really the reason why they're shocked? We'll answer that question in just a second. Verse 28. The woman left the water jar. Whole reason why she came to the well. She leaves the water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? It's a great way to evangelize. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. You know what's interesting here, everybody? That once she really understands who Jesus is, once she gets clarity on his identity, once she figures out his story and where she finds her place in his story, I figure out his story, I figure out my story. Once she figures that out, she is so filled with joy and life and energy. She is so excited that you can't stop her. She runs back to the village, back to people who maybe don't even care for her. She runs back and says, come on out. She runs back. Once we understand truly who Jesus is, we feel so pumped up and excited about that that you can't stop us. We've got to spread it. We've got to spread the news about it because it's the most incredible story ever heard. That's what she heard. I don't know what you heard when I read this story, but that's what she heard. It's the most incredible, and I've got to spread So she's got to serve it. Today we're talking about serving on teams at Grace and signing up. If you understand Jesus' story, one good way to know whether or not you really understand it, you're so pumped and excited, like, I've got to serve it. I've got to pray for it. I've got to study it. I've got to finance it because I'm excited about it. That's one really clear, simple, basic way to say, yep, I really understand the, I really understand the story of Jesus. If not, you're just kind of like, well, whatever. 
I've heard it before, you know, manger, boom, right? There's nothing else to it. But she gets something. And what I'm saying, thinking to myself, what is it that she gets? Because I don't know that everybody who reads this story, particularly me, I've been in church all my life and I've heard this story and I've read it so many times. I'm not like, woo, what is it? So what is she hearing? All right, we've been saying this. Particularly the Bible, but particularly the Gospel of John is layers, layers, layers deep. It's layers deep. And we're going to dig down in the layers, okay? I want to talk about level one first. Level one, it's the most surface level. Level one, it's the understanding. We read it like, ah, yep, I got it. It's my understanding. It's what I thought it meant. It's what almost every single Bible teacher, preacher, commentator has said to me throughout my life. It's like the most surface understanding of this whole thing. She's an immoral woman living amongst an immoral people. She's isolated. So going to a well back in those days was a group event. All the women of the village would get together and they would go in the morning or they would go at night. She goes by herself and she goes in the middle of the day. So she's isolated. So this immoral living woman living amongst an immoral people is, is isolated. Like even they are isolating her. So I don't know what her deal is, but even she is isolated amongst these people. She is all alone. I read one very famous Bible preacher and kind of his take on it. This is what he says. He says, he imagines, he envisions this woman, this Samaritan woman, if he had to like put a thought in his head, he's very colorful with his words. He says, I would see a woman at happy hour sitting on a bar stool with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. Her dress is too low at the top and too high at the bottom. And she's not Samaria's finest and she should never be leading a Bible study. And that's who I envision. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much the way, you know, I've always been told about this. My question to you is this. Is there another, is there something else going on? Because she seems to be really excited after this. So let's go down a level, all right? Let's get away from the surface and let's go deeper. Let's go down to level number two. Now, I want to remind you this. The Bible is written for you. It's not written to you. The Bible is written for you, but it's not written to you. And there's a big difference between the two. If you really want to understand what's going on in the Bible, then you have to understand the people it was written to first century Jewish perspective. You're going to have to understand their perspective. You have to understand, you're going to have to understand all the Hebrew Bible. You have to understand those stories and what they really mean from their perspective. So you got a lot of study to do both within the Bible and outside the Bible, but there's a perspective there. And the easy thing, you're like, John, I can't do all that study. Okay, great. That's no problem. Because this, if you ever read something that seems really inconsistent with the themes that seem, the major themes of Jesus Christ, then you know you should back up and say, there's something else going on here. And I think this might be one of those stories. So what's really happening here? Level two, deeper. Let's go deep and figure out what is the meat of this word right here. Solomon. Third king of Israel, super wise guy, became king about 18 years old, and he prays his prayer. God, give me wisdom to lead this people. And God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a lot of wisdom. Since you didn't ask for riches or long life, I'm actually going to give you a lot of wisdom, and I'm going to give you riches and a long life too. Super wise guy. His name is associated with wisdom in Hebrew scriptures, okay? But towards the end of life, very foolish, the opposite of wisdom, extremely foolish. He overworked and overtaxed the people. And when he dies and his son becomes king, they go to that son who became king and says, look, are you going to quit your dad's foolish ways? And the, and the son says, Rehoboam says, you think my dad was bad? <laughs> I'm going to really lay it on you now. And so here's, this is really important. It's a major theme in the Bible. The kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel break. They divide. It's a broken home. It's a broken family. And here, here's the thing. 
The ten tribes that broke away, they kind of went to the north of Israel. Israel's a very small place. They go up north around the Sea of Galilee, that whole northern type area, up towards that direction. Jerusalem is in the south. And then you have Judah and Benjamin in the south. But the kingdom, the kingdom actually breaks in two. And one of the things that's fascinating, when the Messiah does come, who is prophesied over and over again, when the Messiah does come, the Messiah is going to do five things. I'll just give you one thing the Messiah does. He does five things, five clear things that the Messiah has to do. The first thing is this. The Messiah has to bring back together these 12 tribes that broke apart. So they break apart. Now, when they break apart, the first thing they do is they are immediately unfaithful to the covenant with God. Now, so much about the Bible is seen in a metaphor of marriage. Like, so when it says they were unfaithful to the covenant, they say they committed adultery. You'll read that all over there. Committed adultery. That just simply means this. They were unfaithful to the covenant of God. Some of us might get a little squirmish about what is this whole thing about being married to God? And last week we talked about Jesus as the bridegroom. And, you know, I'm not sure I'm so cool with that or I don't really understand that. Okay, all right. That's cool. That's all right. Marriage is a covenant. It's an unbreakable, loving relationship. Some of us, like, when I was a little boy, you know, what I did is is I, I cut my hand and my best friend cut his hand. And we put the blood together. Anybody ever heard that before? Anybody in the room? Thank you. Okay? We say blood is thicker than water. What a covenant is is this. If you're not getting the marriage theme, okay? It's all over the place. But here's what it means. It's unbreakable. We are now family. We are now blood. We're blood brothers. However you want to put it, there is nothing. There is nothing that will ever happen that will make me turn my back on you. This is what God is offering. He's offering that type of covenant and they immediately broke it and they immediately intermarried. It says they intermarried with these other gods. What does it mean? They begin to intermarry with other people who weren't Jewish. They married Gentiles. Now you're like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm a Gentile. Is something wrong with marrying me? Right? No, that's not what it means. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the people that you marry around you who are serving other gods who have these gods have values that are diametrically opposed to the values of the God of the Bible. There's the clincher, right? If I would ask you right now, hey, what values do you think are so important in your life or that our world needs so desperately? What values are they that our world needs so desperately to make the world a better place? I'm just imagining that you would begin to shout out stuff like we need love, we need respect, we need honesty, we need commitment, right? We need sacrifice. Uh, we, We need... We need to serve other people for their good, put their good in front of our good. We would say diversity, equality. And here's the thing. They begin to intermarry, so to speak, with these other gods whose values are diametrically opposed. Like their values are disrespectful and self-serving. And so this major break happens. Now, God is offering us a covenant. He's not offering us a friend with benefit. Okay? God, that's what God's offering. And the only way to find that living water, right, is if we jump into that covenant. Because the covenant takes both sides. The heart doesn't start beating unless both paddles go in. The battery doesn't come back to life unless both of these things, whatever they're called, go in, right? These little clamps. It doesn't happen. Jesus is there. He had to go to Samaria because he needed to say to the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan people, 
Why aren't you jumping all in? I will give you the living water, but I'm offering you a covenant and you're having a problem with commitment. Why? Because all these other gods you're following, all these other values that are out of alignment are leaving you dehydrated. You're looking for life. You're looking for water. You're looking for purpose. And everybody knows that the values that I stand for famously are the very things that bring life. Simple as that. And they were hesitating for some reasons. And I am offering you that. Now, we desire that. We desire commitment. When I do weddings to this day, I still, people are like, yeah, we got to do this part. Like, the, to, to, to death do us part. Psychologists tell us this. We long. It's a basic need for commitment. Like security is who we're. So you know what I'll say? I'll go through these vows and people are like, yes, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer in sickness and in health till death do us part. And most of the times and most, I got to tell you what, it's more the groom than the bride is crying during that point. Because something deep down inside of that guy is like, yes, that resonates deeply with me. Something about that commitment. We, and this is what Jesus is offering and anything else will leave us dehydrated. Now, you ready for the next level down? So what does all this mean? We're told this in the Bible. Bible tells us. And Jewish historian Josephus tells us this too. That those 10 northern tribes that went and they intermarried with these other gods. That they worshipped and served Five. Five male deities called Baal. B-A-A-L. They worship five Baals. The Canaanite word for Baal is husband. Just like the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman represents the entire group of people who married themselves off to gods whose values were leaving them dehydrated. That's what it means. And God is coming back. The Messiah is coming back and saying, I'm offering you living water. I know you broke the covenant, but I love you. I will come anywhere, including to a forbidden land. And I love you. Come back in and enjoy the benefits of this covenant and enjoy living water. So at a deeper level... It's not just about a woman. It's far more than a woman who's been married five times. It's about a whole group of people who historically had served five husbands, five bales. That's level two. Let's go down level deeper, okay? Let's take it to the deepest level of all, what is really deeply going on, and why his followers are truly shocked, okay? Jesus is in a foreign land. He's Jewish. He's not Samaritan. He's in a foreign land, and he's at Jacob's well, and he's at Jacob's well at noontime. Well, what's up with that? Why is it telling us this? Why is it giving us those specific things? Well, here's what we all need to know. There are three really famous couples in the Bible, three really famous couples in the Bible that all of them knew about. Remember, the Bible is written for you, not to you. Three really famous couples. There's Isaac and Rebecca. There's Jacob and Rachel, and there's Moses and Zipporah. Three famous couples. Now, do you know where each one of those grooms met their bride? Lo and behold, it was at a well. They all met at a well. Now, in Isaac's case, Abraham sends his servant. The servant meets Rebecca and brings back. But still, you get the idea. It's Isaac's servants. They were all met at a well. 
Wells are where you go to propose. Wells are where you go to find a marriage partner. Wells are where you go famously in their day to find a spouse. You go to the well. You wouldn't go to a bar. You wouldn't go to Tinder. You would go to a well. A well was the Tinder of the first century. They all knew it. Okay? This is famous. Now, that's not all there is. As I said, Jesus is a foreigner. He's Jewish. He's in Samaria. Isaac, Jacob, Moses are all in a foreign land, just like Jesus. They're all in a foreign land, and they meet their bride. Jesus is in a foreign land. Isaac's servant says to Rebekah, would you please give me a drink? Jesus says those exact words to the woman of the well. Would you please give me a drink? That's interesting. Isaac's servant says, let me give you these gifts. Jesus says, can I give you the gift of living water? I mean, the language is unmistakable. It's really clear what's happening here. All three, Rebecca, Rachel, and Zipporah, all three at the end of it run home to tell their family exactly what the Samaritan woman did. She ran home and told the family. So why are the disciples shocked? Because this immoral woman living amongst an immoral people with the wrong beliefs and the wrong behaviors is sitting at a well with the king of kings and the lord of lords and he's proposing marriage to her. That is what every single person would have seen. He is proposing to marry once again the Samaritan people who were unfaithful and who had walked away. And they're like, no way. Even God would not marry these people. Even God would, God would never go that far. And all of that makes you think of the prophet Hosea. Every single thing about this. Hosea is from the northern kingdom. Hosea was part of those ten northern tribes. Hosea was a famous prophet. And it's a re-emphasizing of that story is what Jesus is doing here because the Messiah is going to bring all the tribes back together. So who is Hosea? What happened there? He's from the north. He's from where that Samaritan area was. God said to this prophet who was not married and who had this honored position as a prophet, right? Highly esteemed man of God. He said, Hosea, I want you to go out and get married. I got the perfect spouse picked out for you. I want you to marry an unfaithful woman. Thanks, God. That's awesome. They get married, they have a kid, Hosea names the first kid because she was unfaithful to him and got pregnant from somebody else, he names the first child, not mine. How would you like it? What's your kid? Not mine. Huh? She's consistently unfaithful, 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 he treats her lovingly. Eventually, she becomes so unfaithful, she longs after everybody else that she finds her way into prostitution. And what's sad about that is uh, once you found your way into prostitution, you found your way into slavery. And she was gone a long time, and she was actually on the slave block being sold. And Hosea heard about it, and God said, go get your wife. And so what they would do back in those days, you know, at the auctioning off of slaves is they would strip them naked, humiliate them standing up so everybody could see what they're buying. There'd be a big crowd of people and everybody's bidding. It's an auction. And so people are bidding on her. Her name is Gomer. 
And lo and behold, she hears at the back of the crowd, she hears somebody shouting out a bid for her, outbidding everybody else since the voice of her husband. And he refuses to be outbid. All the pain, he refuses to be outbid. And he outbids everybody else and he goes and lovingly clothes her and takes her home and looks her in the eye and says, now you're going to be my wife. And it says he treats her lovingly and gently. He says, I'm going to love you. I'm like, oh my gosh. A covenant story that we're talking about here is always a shocking story. Everything about covenant love, everything about Jesus, he epitomizes covenant love, always shocking. If the Jesus you're following or the Jesus you think you know about isn't shocking you. You've got the wrong Jesus. So what does all this have to do for us today? This is the living water that Christ offers us. We find our story and his story. We need to figure out who he is in order to figure out who we are. The reason this story is the most influential story in the world is because it's the thing that we need more than anything else. We need that type of unconditional love and commitment, and it's being offered, only being offered by Jesus Christ. Here's what Steve Jobs says about the power of story. Steve Jobs says the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. The storyteller sets the vision, the values, and the agenda for an entire generation. That's why this story is the most influential story that we have ever known as human beings, because it tells what we need the most, and that's living water. And the only way to get that living water, everybody, is if we're willing to jump in. Now, no matter what, no matter where you are, no matter how worthy or unworthy you think you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you are right now, Jesus is always right here, because that's covenant love. There's no place he won't go. There's no depths that covenant love won't go to but we have to be willing to jump in in order for us to come alive and experience the living water that's just the way covenants work the water is offered but will we jump in now today we're going to have communion don't move yet communion team and the music team is going to come out and they're going to sing a special song by lauren daigle called you say but i just want to say a couple quick things before we do that this song you say it starts off with these words, I keep fighting voices in my head. You know, isn't that the truth? Don't all of us keep fighting voices in our heads? You know, our parents say things about us. I don't know, good, bad, hopefully it was good, but sometimes it's bad. Families say things, neighbors say things, strangers say things. You know, preachers say things, teachers, coaches, but most devastating of all, we say stuff about ourselves. The song goes on to say, You say I am loved. You say I am strong. And the only thing that matters now is what you think of me. Here's what I want to ask you to do today in communion. In communion, what we do is we take a piece of bread. We take a cup that has a small amount of drink in it. And what you do with that is you you drink it all in. You eat it all in. Like it becomes a part of you. And what is really happening in communion is you're saying your story What you say about me is the only thing that matters. I'm taking it all in. I'm not taking it halfway in. I'm taking it all in. What is it today that you need to stop saying about yourself? What story, what word is it that today, that as you take in communion, that's it. Today, no longer. I'm stopping right here. I'm not listening to any other voice but what Jesus Christ says about me.
Because once you really know who you are and you go all in and you believe that, that's when your life can really change and you experience living water. And why wouldn't you want to? The very values that we esteem, we hold so highly, like, yes, that's what we need, that's what I need, that's what the world needs, is everything that Jesus Christ stands for. Why wouldn't we go all in? So today I want to encourage you. If you choose to take communion, that you think about that, and you force every other word, every other story out of your mind, and you take that in and let those living waters hear you. So I'm going to ask the communion team if you would just go and, and grab the trays. I'll explain in a second. The music team's going to come out. It's going to help me by singing this song. As they're all moving, let me just say this to you uh, real briefly. Communion here at Grace is open to absolutely everybody. Now, at the same time, when I say that it's open to everybody, I, I don't want you to think, oh, my gosh, it's open to everybody. Everybody's going to take it. I feel like i got to take it. Everybody's going to look at me if I don't take it. You're not in that place. You're not in that kind of church. You do what you're comfortable with doing. You do what you're comfortable with doing. All we're asking today is if you take communion, you would drink in, you would eat in Jesus' message to you of covenantal love that knows no depths. Soak up his story and it becomes a part of you. I'm going to pray and we're going to pass the uh, communion plates and we'll sing this song. Let's pray. God, thank you for your shocking covenant love. And thank you that no matter what we do or where we are, that you stand ready with living water if we'll dive into it. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, may your words become a part of us and force everything else out so that we might really live in Christ's name. Amen.